for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. I think uh, springtime is probably my favourite season of the year. Uh, you know, you're coming out of the coldness of, of winter and you begin to sense some warmth. You, you come out of the dullness of winter and you get some light. Um, you come out of the death of winter and you begin to see life breaking out all around you. And, and you just rejoice in God, don't you? You say, I, well, I hope you do. Uh, you, you know, I hope you're not walking through the world blindly, sort of missing the magnolias and, and all of that kind of thing that's out there, the daffodils and so on. God created an amazing world, and uh, it just shouts to us every day of, of God. And, and I just, you know, it makes me feel like the, the, the songwriter of years ago who said, you know, when I, when I look at all these things, all I want to do is sing, Oh Lord my God, how great thou art. Uh, it is a, an, an amazing world that we live in. We have just celebrated Easter uh, last Sunday, it was a privilege to be up on the Y-Downs uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning and uh, with about 150 to 200 others just proclaiming the, the resurrection as the, the sun was coming up over the hills behind us and then bathing it all in wonderful, wonderful light and just to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. Uh, and you know... <laughs> There's not going to be a rematch. <laughs> it's over, it's done, it's dusted. Uh, on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. It was finished because when he was down there in death, he paid the price for all of our sin. And in Romans chapter 4, it says he was raised because of our justification. In other words, what had taken place in his death, in his burial, satisfied the justice of God. And uh, redemption, justification was made there in his death. And because it was done, he could rise again. Praise God for that. So I hope this morning you're not only rejoicing in the springtime, but you're also rejoicing in the Savior. Uh, Because it is not the cross that has said it at all but it is the resurrection and ascension. If, we've only, if we're left with the cross saying it all, we, we're left in Good Friday. But the resurrection and the ascension tells us today that the price has been paid for all of our sin and that there is a man in the glory. And that gives me hope of heaven when I die. Amen. Hallelujah. What a glorious gospel this is. If you like to go in your Bibles to John's gospel and to... Uh, chapter 20. And we're going to just read, first of all, the, a little bit about Easter Sunday. And then we're going to read into the following week. Because let's be honest, it's not always plain sailing. It's not always easy to believe. Sometimes doubts arise. And this morning we're looking at the subject of in, encountering Jesus with my doubts or in my doubts. I was brought up in a Christian home and I thank God for it. I came to know Christ in my late teens and I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. But a number of years later, I encountered, or over time, I've encountered sticky patches. Patches that have caused me to to doubt, 
to question my faith, to question the reality of God, to question the reality of what Jesus has done. Can I really be sure? And I think every one of us, in some way or other, encounters doubts. And I'm glad that there are people in the Bible who did, because that helps me as well. And so in John chapter 20, uh, we read these words, beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, the doors being locked, uh, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. There they are, trembling for fear of the Jews. The one that they had given their life to and followed for three years had been crucified and laid in a tomb. One or two reports had begun to circulate that maybe he wasn't dead anymore, that he was in fact alive. And here they were on this first day of the week, the doors were locked, they were full of fear, and Jesus enters the room, imagine it. Jesus enters the room, and knowing their fear and trepidation, he says to them, peace be with you. Maybe there's someone here this morning, that's how you've come in, fearful. And Jesus would, through the Spirit, say to you this morning, in the midst of your trepidation and fear, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he he showed them his hands and his, his side because in some ways he could be just a ghost, couldn't he? I mean, he just appeared, the doors were locked, and suddenly there he was. And, and now he, he shows them his, his hands and his side, and, and they see, all the, see the real physical flesh of Jesus. They see the, the imprints in his hands and, and the mark in his side. And it says that the disciples were then glad when they saw the Lord. Wow! Jesus, you're alive! Can you imagine it? That sense. Yeah, just a few hours ago, we we, we saw you on a cross and we saw you you, you die. We saw you expire. We heard your last words. It is finished. And then you you gave up your spirit. You gave up your your very life and you you died. And then they they took you down and they, they put you in a grave and they sealed it and they put soldiers there So there was no way anybody could take you out or do anything with your body. But Jesus, here you are. You're in our midst. Wonderful, isn't it? The disciples were then glad when they saw the Lord. I I am glad that the Bible is a real book. And it talks about people like we know people. Like I know myself, like you know yourself with all of our fickleness, with all our tendency to to be believing one minute and then doubtful the next minute. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. What a commission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of anyone, they are retained. 
What a commission. What a commission. Now there's one guy who we all know who wasn't there. (laughs) And everybody in the world really knows who this guy is, don't they? We all know of a guy called Doubting Thomas. And this is where it comes from. So many of the phrases that you find out there in the world actually find their origins in this book. But, and so verse 24, but, and you know the story is immediately going to have a twist, don't you? Once you've got a but there, you know something's going to happen here. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And I kind of hear Thomas responding a bit like, McEnroe, you must be joking. <laughs> you know? Uh, he's dead. It's finished. It's over. And he says to them, he says, unless I seal the, see the nail prints in his hands and put my finger in the nail prints and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Wow. Here's this guy who's been with Jesus for three years. And at one point, he was actually prepared to go to death with Jesus because his commitment was so great. He said, let's go and let's die there. So this man was no kind of fickle man. He knew who Jesus was and he knew what he was about and he was willing to go with Jesus and die somewhere. But this is kind of like, I can't get this. What's going on? He was crucified. He was buried. And you're saying that you have seen him. Again, the idea, well, maybe it wasn't really him in his physical form. Hence the question, unless I see him and put my finger into his hands and put my hand into his side and feel his real flesh and see those real marks, I will not believe. After eight days... His disciples were again inside with the doors shut and Thomas was with them and Jesus came and stood among them and and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, "I, I love that. I love that. He knew, didn't he? He knew. No one had to tell him he knew because he's Jesus, he's God. And he knew all about Thomas. He knew about his doubts and he knows about yours as well. And he just comes to him and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand here and and place it in my side. Don't be faithless or doubting, but be believing. And Thomas answers with the most profound statement in the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, he says, my Lord and my God. A bit more on that a little bit later. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that means you here this morning, if you believe, you're blessed. Wonderfully, 
wonderfully blessed. Thomas doubted. Even though he had walked with the Savior and knew him well, he doubted. Have you ever doubted? Have you ever had someone that you know come to you and and tell you a story and you've listened to the story and you think, nah, not true. I guess we all know situations like that. And maybe even coming in this morning, you have your doubts. You're here, but you're just not sure. You struggle with the reality or not of God. His very existence, is it for real? Is He for real? You have what we would call intellectual doubt. You're constantly weighing up, assessing it. And maybe it's not helped by some of the Christians you've encountered. They've been a poor witness to you. And that hasn't helped the way you have thought or might think about God. Another form of doubt is emotional doubt. You've believed in God. You've known something of God in your life. But something's happened that's caused you to ask some big questions that you never thought you would ask before. Ask big questions of your faith. Maybe life has not turned out as you had expected it. There's been an injustice. You've been hurt along the way. You've had a painful experience. And there's a sense of distance between you and God. And for you today, maybe the big questions are, it comes out of this emotional doubt, why and where? Why, God? If you're there, why did this happen to me? If you're there, God, then where are you? Because I don't know how to find you at the moment. I don't feel you in this moment of time. So there's intellectual doubt. There's emotional doubt, which is quite different. And the answer to both is different. When doubt creeps in, we can end up discouraged. We can end up depressed. We can end up frustrated. We can end up angry. There's another form of doubt that's been around for a long time, though, and it actually it's very popular. It's very trendy in today's world. And you'll see it on television. You'll see it on the chat shows. And it's skeptical doubt. It's, if you like, the professional skeptic. It's the sort of thing that you, where people love to indulge in, if you like, what I might call irresponsible argument. All they're interested in doing is just bandying things around and discussing it this way, that way, and the, the other. They're not really interested in answers. It's all about emotional rhetoric. It's just about raising another question. And there's a lot of that around today. To quote uh, Dallas, Dallas Willard, this is what he says, for centuries now, our culture has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can be almost as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. <laughs> the sad fact is that, that is true. That people think it's good to have skeptical doubt. Now, there are seedbeds of doubt, and perhaps we'll come back and visit these in a moment. Some people refer to them as families of doubt. I, I, I like to think of them perhaps as seedbeds of, of doubt, in which the, the, the doubt can germinate 
and it can find a place. And this might be the case for you this morning, just to, to throw these out. So you have unthankfulness. There is having a faulty view of God. There is having weak foundations to your Christian life. A lack of commitment is also a seedbed of doubt. A lack of personal growth can be a seedbed of doubt. A lack uh, 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 Unruly emotions can be the seedbed of doubt. Uh, hidden conflicts and bad experiences can be seedbeds for doubt. The reality is none of us are immune. Os Guinness says it's not primarily a Christian problem, but it's a human problem. The proof of doubt is not in our, is not in our faith, but in the root of doubt is not in our faith, but in our humanness. And even more than that, we might say it is in our fallenness. It is natural for us to doubt. Come more on that in just a moment. C.S. Lewis, who's, if you've ever read his story, and if you haven't, I recommend you do, it's an amazing story, and he makes this comment in Mere Christianity. He says, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which, in which Christianity looked terribly probable. So there you are, one minute it's this way, and another minute it's that way. Faith, unbelief, denial, and doubt are all part of the Bible story. That's one of the, the blessings of, of this book. It's part of the Easter story. I'm glad that when I read it, there's no superficiality, there's no glossing over, there's, there's, no, there's no airbrushing to make people look better than what they are. We encounter people in the Bible just like ourselves. And even those who encountered Jesus in his physical form had their questions. Some believed and others didn't. It says he, he came unto his own and his own knew him not. They didn't recognize the day of their visitation. The very one that they had been, uh, who had been promised to them and they had hoped for for years upon years and century upon century was right there in their midst and they didn't recognize him. You think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, there he was, uh, baptizing people. And as he's baptizing people, someone comes to him who stands out from all the others. And he looks at him and he knows that this man does not need to be baptized because there is nothing wrong with him. And he looks at this man and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away that which I'm talking about and that which we're dealing with when we go down into baptism. This man does not need to be baptized. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet later on, John the Baptist is struggling. John the Baptist sends a group of people to go and find out who Jesus is. In the midst of difficult circumstances, suddenly John the Baptist is struggling with who he has confessed Jesus to be. And he needs some assurance. The Bible's full of people like us, isn't it? We might, uh, uh, Paul Tillich 
says this. He says, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. Think about that. It's an element of faith. It sits between faith and unbelief. In many ways, we might say it sits between one, a belief of one kind and belief of another kind. Because actually, we were made for faith. Every one of us lives in some way by a measure of faith. Even the skeptic, the atheist, lives by a measure of faith. He cannot prove for absolute certainty that there is no God. He lives by a measure of faith. Humanity, people made in the image of God, were made for faith. This book, though it contains history, science, and is great literature, is at the end of the day a faith document. It is the Word of God. It is God-breathed. It is given to us by God. It's profitable in every way. We might say this, doubt is faith seeking reassurance. Doubt is faith seeking reassurance. That might be where you're at this morning. Something's happened in your life and you believe and you're, you're like the, the guy in the New Testament who, who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah? There is a place for positive confession, but there's also a place for reality. And the Bible recognizes distinct reality in our lives. And there was this guy saying, yeah, Lord, I believe, but actually there's part of me that's not believing. Lord, help my unbelief. That might be you this morning. It might be that you are struggling with some aspect of faith. You are seeking some kind of reassurance. Doubting Thomas. He was called by Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. He, he ministered with Jesus. And yet when it came to the resurrection, as we've seen, he, he doubted. He was, he was having none of it. Jesus alive again? You can't be serious. And it's interesting to notice that Jesus doesn't judge him for doubting. He doesn't come along and say, Come on, Thomas, you should have known better. He comes to him in all of his doubt. And he seeks to bring him from that position of doubt to faith, to full and vibrant faith. And this is what this, this book is all about. If you've got your Bible in front of you, or you've got it on a, an app, um, go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You see, we need to remember that doubt is something that the enemy trades in. Yeah? Doubt is something that the enemy trades in. And he did that with Adam and Eve right back there in the garden. They knew what it was to walk with God day by day. 
They experience God coming down to them in some way, and they, they, they experience communion with Him. They had a real and a vital relationship with God. And yet the enemy sowed seeds of doubt into their mind as to the goodness of the God that they believed in and they were serving. The enemy loves to trade in doubt. Has God said? Is that what he really meant? Is it for you, etc.? Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Whereas many have undertaken to write a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having accurately investigated all things from the very beginning, beginning to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of the things with which you have been told. So Luke is saying, look guys, and, and, and this guy, with his mind, his disciplined mind, his approach to life and so on, he was going to set out an orderly account so that Theophilus might be sure of that which he believed. I came across this statement uh, uh, from Sir William Ramsey, who was by no means a a great believer of any kind. And he was a a professor both at Oxford and Aberdeen and a founder of the British Academy. And this is what he has to say when he is researching Luke. He's been looking at the Acts of the Apostles. He's been looking at the truthfulness of the Acts of the Apostles, the record that is stated there, because it had come under criticism, uh, and, 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 and he was a doubter, if ever there was a doubter. He was a doubter. But this is what he says. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements uh, of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest historian. That's quite a statement from somebody outside of the ranks of Christianity. Luke's desire was to write an orderly account regarding Jesus Christ. And then if you come over to John's Gospel, and we read those words there. John's Gospel, chapter 20. And we read right at the end of uh, that chapter we read these words. Jesus performed, in verse 13, many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Wow. John was writing for doubters. He was writing to them, wanting them to understand who Jesus is. He was wanting them to have a sure confidence of faith in him. And he says, these things are written that you might believe and that believing you might have life in his name. Let's just think for a moment about this witness that we have before us. It's very easy to think of this as one book. 
And critics who very often don't know what they're talking about will see this as one book and compare it to others. But it's not one book. It's 66 books. That's staggering in itself. 66 books written over about 1,500 years by over 40 people, many of whom didn't know one another. People who came from very close at hand to hundreds of miles apart and who lived in different cultures. Staggering. 66 books, 1,500 years, over 40 different writers, and yet somehow we have one book. There is a theme that runs through this book from Genesis to Revelation that is unstoppable. It contains many prophecies. Some of those relating to Israel considered to be so accurate that those who are liberal in their thinking, in other words, who doubt the word of God, who doubt when it was written and so on, are so accurate that they want to put the date after the time it happened. And yet, when you study those scriptures and you look at the authenticity of what is written and the time it was written and so on, they were written hundreds of years before events took place and fulfilled completely. It has one unique message, which is the amazing thing. Then you you think of the person of whom it speaks from, from beginning to end. It speaks of Jesus Christ. So over 1,500 years, 40 authors most of whom didn't know one another, all writing about one God and one person who would come, Jesus. It speaks from beginning to end of the the promise of a Savior. There are well over 300 prophecies concerning the coming coming of Jesus, many of them written hundreds of years before he was born, fulfilled in wonderful, minute detail. No such prophecies were given regarding Muhammad or Confucius or Siddhartha Gautama, the founder of Buddhism or any other founder of a world religion. This book, written over 1,500 years, by over 40 different people, speaking time and time again that one would come who would be the Savior, Jesus Christ. 28 prophecies were fulfilled in his crucifixion alone. That's staggering. And that there are all sorts of places you can go to to find this kind of information if you're willing to give the time and the energy to it. Let me just say this in respect to that. You see, the answer to doubt is not to just to push it back somewhere and try and forget about it, the answer to doubt is to do something about it. These things are written so that you may know and may have full assurance of that which you have believed and the one in whom you have believed. John's gospel alone is an amazing gospel in and of itself. At the very beginning or near the beginning, there are seven scenes, and at the end, there are seven more scenes that... uh, shows something of the progress of the development of the understanding of Jesus. So at the beginning, there are seven scenes that help the disciples know who Jesus is. And then at the end of the gospel, there are seven more scenes relating to 
Pontius Pilate. Now, I must confess, I've always dissed Pontius Pilate. But actually, I'm looking at him in a different way today because I think he came to a measure of faith. I think he came to a measure of faith because when you walk through those seven scenes, he's gradually moving from a position of unbelief to that position where he says, I want you to nail on the cross, he is the king of the Jews. And when they tried to stop him doing that, he said, no, what I have written, I have written. Now, whether that was a full faith or not, I don't know. But in some way or other, he has made a journey. He said, I find no fault in this man. In this man. He made a confession about Jesus that many Jews would not, what not do. Pilate said, he is the king. Jews. In other words, he is Messiah, King of the Jews. So you've got these seven scenes at the beginning and at the end. And then you've got seven signs. And as you look at those, you've got the changing of the water into wine. You've got healing the royal official's son in Capernaum. You've got the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda on the Sabbath. You've got the feeding of the 5,000. You've got Jesus walking on water. You've got healing the man who was born blind. You've got the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You see, John sets out his gospel in a very ordered way because he wants you to come to the conclusion when you've got to the end of it, this Jesus is none other than the Son of God, our Savior. And you can have every confidence in believing in him. And so, you know, you've got elements there of, of, of changing substance, water into wine. You've got miraculous provision. You've got Jesus walking on water. You've got Jesus raising the dead. In actual fact, we might say that there are eight signs in John's gospel, and the ultimate one is Jesus himself rising from the dead. And then, aside from that, or added to that, You've got the seven I am statements of Jesus. Now, this might not mean much to us, but it meant something to those who were going to hear this or going to read it. Because these I am statements related to God himself. So in the Old Testament, we find God revealing himself to Moses as the I am that I am. And so when Jesus begins to make these statements, a bell is beginning to ring. And it's ringing throughout every one of these statements. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Wow. And so as you go through, you can look at, we've just done a brief overview of Scripture there. We've dived into John's Gospel and had a look at the way he structured that very deliberately to help people know and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, of course, you could just turn around to me and say, well... That's all circular reasoning, isn't it? You're just quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. 
I want to share with you a fact that most Christians don't know, and I think we ought to know. And it is this, that the majority of secular historians do not diss the Bible. Did you, did you hear what I said there? The majority of secular historians do not diss the Bible. Let me quote Paul Mayer, a professor of ancient history. This is what he says, secular historians often have a much higher regard for the New Testament as source material than do many theologians and scholars of religion. Wow. There is a guy, and I can't remember his name, he put a challenge out there in the world. He said, if, if you can find somebody who will do that, I will, I can't remember whether he said, eat something or pay them something, I can't remember now. And as yet, he's had no one respond to that challenge. Nelson Gluck, and I'm not sure whether that's how you pronounce his name, but he was a Jewish rabbi and archaeologist, renowned Middle Eastern archaeologist. He points, points this out. He says this, In all of my archaeological investigation, I have never found anything from antiquity which contradicts any statement in the Bible. If you ever get the chance... <laughs> Do as some of you have done. Go to the British History, the, the, the you know to the to yeah, History Museum, isn't it? Yeah, uh, go go there and um, do the tour of the History Museum, and it will open your eyes as to the amount of stuff that exists that says this book is true. And all the time, over and over again, they are finding more and more material that says the people and the places in the Bible are verifiable. That's staggering. There's a whole lot of stuff we could just draw on there. We need to know these things because they're important. At one time, it was very fashionable to criticize the Bible, what was called the higher critical movement. And it was to pull it to pieces, it was to make the miracles just stories that taught us lessons, etc., etc. Um, and the Bible got pulled to pieces this way, that one, the other. But modern archaeology has turned that upside down. So that even secular historians today will hold the Bible in high esteem when it comes to what it's talking about, the people and the places. I read just the other day, for example, and my time is running away, so I read the other day. Um, yeah, let me just comment on here, for example. Uh, oh, well, I'll come to that in a minute. <laughs> People talk about the distance that exists between people and records. How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Yeah, how many of you? Now, I don't want to cause you to be doubting, but the records that we have for Alexander the Great are not very good. They're not great. No, exactly. They're not great at all. And in fact, they don't occur for about 250 to 350 years after his existence. That's the earliest records we got. And yet all of us know about Alexander the Great. And we make big films about Alexander the Great. 
And we say, this is who Alexander the Great was, and this is what he did. And we all believe it without any shred of doubt. The Bible is so different. There are some people now who are actually saying that the records that we have of Jesus Christ were written only a few months after he ascended to heaven. A few months. That's massive. I read an amazing piece the other day. It's still being verified but by a, a well-known Bible scholar and theologian. And, and he has access to a piece of Mark's gospel. And this has been found in one of those Egyptian mummies. Now, apparently, there were expensive mummies, mummies for people who are well off, and then there were the low-end ones, which were kind of thrown together from all sorts of bits and pieces of paper and papyrus that they could find. And so it was a, a papier-mâché thing of all sorts of materials. And they have, they, they've got some that they've been slowly peeling them off to find out what is in these particular mummies. And as they've begun to peel these layers off, they have found a part of Mark's gospel. And it's actually believed that this could have been written right at that time, the time of Jesus. It could yet be the earliest piece of Bible manuscript we have ever found. Now, it's interesting that the atheists are saying, oh, dear, oh, dear, you can't do that to some Egyptian, you know, mummy. You know, you're destroying it. Uh, they're not concerned about the fact that, hey, look at this. When we, Pam and I, visited Israel uh, uh, three years ago now, I think it is, when we visited Israel, we visited Qumran, which is where a whole load of scrolls were found. The earliest documents or... the, the the closest documents to the Old Testament that we had at that time was something like um, there was a gap of a, a, a thousand years, which is a long time, the earliest Hebrew manuscript. When they found those scrolls in 1947, little boy, <laughs> just out there trying to get his, his goats or whatever it is out of the cave, throwing stones in, you know, frightened them and, and suddenly heard something break. And he thought, what was that? And he went in and found these jars and these manuscripts. When they found those manuscripts, they found documents that would go take what we know of the Hebrew Old Testament back a thousand years. And you know, the amazing thing was they have done a huge amount for our understanding of the Old Testament. Because they are almost word for word uh, the same as the documents that we've had available up until to date. Because some people said, well, no, these people and places didn't exist. And they found these and over and over again. Reference, 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 reference. It's staggering. Um, you could do a whole session on that alone. Just thinking of of the New Testament, we have over 5,700 pieces of manuscript relating to the New Testament alone. That's a staggering amount of information. Let us try and draw in to a close, shall we? Just thinking about some of these things here. The life, death and resurrection 
are accepted as facts by virtually everyone who is an ancient historian around the world. That, that's a staggering statement in itself. The alleged bias that is so often referred to doesn't trouble ancient historians. The New Testament is a collection of sources that weren't bound as one document. And that means that they are testimonies of individual people. The New Testament is made up of very early evidence. The latest uh, text, uh, best text for Emperor Tiberius, written by Tacitus, is about 77 years after his life. Archaeology confirms and supports the history and the veracity of the Gospels over and over again. One of those, again, was the Paul of Siloam, which we visited when we were in Israel. And uh, for many years, it was thought, no, it wasn't a real place. It was, a, you know, if you like, a made-up made up story. And then in June 2004, they were doing sewage repairs in Israel and in Jerusalem. And what did they find? The Paul of Siloam. William Lane Craig says this. He says, Jesus' resurrection is unparalleled in terms of strong evidence for confirming any other worldview. That's staggering. I've just thrown a little bit out at you this morning. There's a whole lot more that we could touch on. So you might be here this morning and your doubt is intellectual doubt. And I would challenge you to go read Find the materials. Look at it honestly. Because in actual fact, there is overwhelming evidence, there is overwhelming testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ was a real person. He lived, he performed miracles, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, he went down into death, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. Wonderful. Do the research. We've touched on some of it this morning. It might be this morning that your problem is one of emotional doubt. You've believed in God. You've trusted him. But something has happened that has caused you to, to wonder whether it's all really true, whether it's all really worthwhile. And the approach there is not one of an intellectual answer. It is of getting alongside other Christians. It is, brothers and sisters, when we find someone in that situation, not condemning them, but being there and loving them. Loving them. Loving them in their sense of lostness. Loving them in their sense of hopelessness. Loving them in the sense that perhaps they don't have any answers at the moment. Not trying to intellectually bolster up their faith. It's an emotional doubt. And it needs a different kind of ministry. Wow. Thomas! He, he believed, he followed Jesus, he would have gone and died with him. And then he... He struggles, he doubts, and then he comes to this place of great faith and he says, my Lord and my God. And when you look at the history of Thomas, we can't be absolutely sure, 
But he went on to preach the gospel in some amazing places in ancient Babylon, Persia, uh, present-day Iran. He went on as far as India and preached the gospel in India and gave his life for Christ. He came through his doubt to a place of strong and certain faith that led him to cover huge distances, to experience suffering, all in the cause of Christ that others may know him whom to know is life eternal. When I read that, I felt ashamed. I've known it and I've read it before, but I felt ashamed. Because we get so comfortable. We see so much of the pressures of the world and they become our agenda. But this man was consumed by Jesus Christ and his absolute reality. Let's stand. Any here this morning who are struggling to know you intellectually? Lord, perhaps they've been on the websites, they've listened to all the arguments of the atheists, they've, perhaps they've come from a background, Lord, that's never said anything about you, and Lord, they just don't know. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit this morning, you would help them to come to that sure and certain faith that you are God. You are real. It's in you that we're living, we're moving, we're having our being this morning. Lord, that they would come to that place of knowing you, Lord Jesus, that you lived and you died and you rose again as we were singing earlier. You came to save and you came to reconcile us to this God we had turned away from. Holy Spirit, would you bring from unbelief through doubt to faith. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who are really struggling because of emotional doubt. Things have gone on in their lives and Lord, they don't know where you are at the moment. You don't feel as if you're there. They don't know why what has happened has happened to them. And Lord, it feels hopeless. I pray, Lord God, they may sense your great love, even here this morning. Lord, just sense you close in this moment even. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you will help us as your people not to judge but to come with your love and your grace and to minister your great heart to those who find themselves in emotional doubt. I thank you for the reality, Lord God, of your Bible, your word. Thank you that it talks about people like me, like us. Lord, I thank you that it's a very real book. You haven't done a paint shop job on it. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to draw encouragement from these scriptures that we might grow in greater faith. 
Lord, that we might go and do exploits for you this coming week and see more of your kingdom coming and your will being done. In Jesus' name, amen.